This episode is brought to you by .site domains. If you're looking to build a great website for your business, you can find a short and meaningful domain name on the .site domain extension. To register, visit www.get.site, that's S-I-T-E, and use the code SELFRELIANCE to get up to a 50% discount on your purchase. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance. My guest today is Chuck Swoboda. He is an innovator in residence at Marquette University and retired chairman and CEO of Cree. Dot Inc. I don't think it was actually Dot Inc., but Cree Inc. And he's also the author of a book called The Innovator's Spirit, Discover the Mindset to Pursue the Impossible. So, Chuck, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here. So I think I might have also missed out on your current employment. You've actually started a consulting practice as well. Is that right? Yeah, I, uh, I have a small consulting company called Cape Point Advisors, really focused on helping businesses through uh, typically the growth phase businesses. So trying to yeah. understand how to scale up or also uh, helping some larger businesses deal with some of the threats of technology. Yeah. So um, in the book, one of my favorite things that I came upon uh, very early is is this idea of solving a problem, that innovation should solve a problem that creates value. And what's funny about that is I've been saying that for a long time about marketing messages. I mean, that's if you can figure out what that is, <laughs> the problem you actually solve, because it's probably not what you sell, uh, that, that that would be a huge uh, marketing message. But you're 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 probably couching it in terms of, of say, product or, or strategy. Uh, correct. I'm thinking product and strategy, but honestly, it is a marketing concept. Yeah. Um, you know, it's actually a concept they even use in politics, which is, you know, the way you w get your message out is you have to solve a problem that the customer already has and you have to make it relevant to them. And so in politics, you just care about defining the problem. Yeah. Uh, and in business, what you have to understand is, is that, I think for product people or services, we like to think of what this cool thing we do is, but we forget that that's kind of the feature. And really what it matters is, is how does it make the customer's life better? And, and as a tech guy, we really struggled. We loved features. Engineers just think the new widget's great, but uh, yeah. it took me a while to learn that solving a problem is where it's at. Well, and I think sometimes the, the identifying the problem and communicating the problem sort of helps you connect with the person because a lot of times they don't connect their problem with what we have to sell. <laughs> and so until they understand that, that we get them, we get their problem, you know, in some cases they're not going to listen or not even care what we sell if they can't make that connection. Yeah. And I think part of it is, is we're not uh, the product or service people. I think as marketers, we can be pretty tone deaf sometimes. Right. Yeah. And, you know, for us, a, the very simple example, we invent an LED light bulb. We think it saves energy and lasts forever and people right. are going to want it. Why wouldn't you want a light bulb? It never burns out. Right. No one wanted it. It wasn't until we realized that what people cared about was saving money. Yeah. And the, and the moment we stopped saying save energy and last forever and started explaining that we save them money, the market changed radically. But that was us changing. We had to hear what the customer cared about because um, we actually did consumer testing on the other things. And people said they just didn't care. It was apathy yeah. was what we found out. Yeah, I would say aesthetic was probably a part of the initial challenge on that one too, right? Once the bulbs got a lot better looking or, or normal looking or whatever, I think that helped people uh, adopt them as well. Our original marketing strategy when we figured out was looks like a light bulb, yeah. works like a light bulb, and it's less than 10 bucks. Yeah, Those were the three features. And yeah, and making it not look weird was like yeah. the big breakthrough. 
<laughs> it's not funny. So um, there's a lot of, uh, there, I don't know if there's that much confusion, but there's a lot of contention about like which route to go here, innovation or invention. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just going to let you, t- I'm just going to tee that one up and tell me, you know, what should people be looking for? It depends on what you want to do. Um, yeah. So an invention to me is something new. And an innovation typically starts with something new as well. The difference is an invention stops there. It's just new, right? Um, An innovation then goes on and it fills those other ideas we were just talking about. It has to solve a problem and create value. And what I find is that it's actually not hard to get people to come up with something new. Hmm. The challenge is helping them think through those second two pieces because so many of us don't want to solve the problem or don't want to make really, you know, force ourselves to, you know, create value. I think it was Edison said that he wanted to make sure that whatever he invented, someone would buy because its sale was proof of utility and utility to him was success. And the problem for most of us is we just want to do the new thing. And frankly, over 25 years of, I mean, create over 5,000 patents, less than, a hundred of them were innovations. Hmm. So having said that, would you say that, that innovation, I mean, is innovation easier than invention or is it actually harder uh, than invention? I think it's much harder because most of us don't want to go through the people side of innovation. So, you know, innovation includes the marketing problem, right? Mm -hmm. How do you convince someone that this solves their problem? You know, you can, I have this widget, but convincing them at Cree, we spend as much or more time actually figuring out how to convince people to embrace this new technology and showing them how it would make their lives better. And I think that that word there, show, is something we often skip. So I think most of us like to tell people why something is better. And in reality, for new technology, you have to show them. People can't relate to something they've never seen before. Quite often an innovation requires change in behavior of the person you're trying to sell it to. Uh, and I think that's probably creates as much friction as anything because people just don't like to change. I don't care if it's good for them. <laughs> they don't like to change, it seems like. But right now we're going through a period of probably some of the greatest innovation, um, I think, in, in history because it's been forced on us. Um, what What sort of factor does this... And and I'm, I'm, we're recording this in uh, July of 2020, so I'm alluding to you know COVID and the worldwide health um, you know issues that have created. For for example, I you know everybody's using Zoom now, right? I've been using Zoom for five years, and they've innovated more in the last 90 days than they did the entire you know four and a half years because they're being forced to. So what what you know what role do you think that sort of forced innovation uh, plays that, that could teach us a lesson? Well, it's interesting. When I wrote the book, there wasn't a crisis. And in my last chapter, I talk about one of the keys to getting people to innovate is creating some reason for them to focus on this problem. And I actually have a section in the last chapter called Don't Waste a Crisis. And the idea was, is that, so, and you alluded to this, psychologists will tell you that our brains are hardwired to associate sameness with safety and change with danger. That is the basic human condition. But in a crisis, when all of a sudden sameness doesn't work, the status quo doesn't get you there, all of a sudden people are forced to consider change in a way they never would have otherwise. And I would say that most of the work at Cree was convincing people to try something new or to get them to change. The crisis just opened that wide up. And it does two things. It gives you an excuse to try things you probably didn't want to try before. 
It helps you get your team to embrace some ideas that they wouldn't have tried before. And it changes the customer's perspective. The customer is willing to try things right now they wouldn't have tried before. So give you an example. Um, I own a part of a small brewery and we've implemented things like uh we never had takeout service at our brewery, yeah. right? And it's an incredibly successful part of this. And in fact, it's allowed us to engage our customers in a way we never would have. We had talked about it, but before we were too busy servicing our traditional models yeah. to do that. And now I think, so this, this moment of crisis has put a lot of us in a position where we're forced to take some of these ideas and actually go test them and do them. Yeah. And I wonder, um, I've wondered this um, and uh, other folks that I've talked to that have had, you know, sort of been forced to innovate. A, a lot of uh, people are finding out, consumers included, that, hey, I kind of like this method. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have thought of doing this, but I kind of like it. I think I think a lot of these innovations are going to stick around, aren't they? Oh, I have no doubt. In fact, you know, a, another example, I, I happen to be involved at a board of a university and we tried to get them to go put more classes online for the last decade. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I think it, or late this year, the answer was it would take us three to five years to put all of our courses online and no one really wants them all online anyways. Yeah. So we weren't going to do it. And, uh, you know, spring break happens and colleges shut down. And in seven days, just about every major university put all of their curriculum online, something that was theoretically viewed as right. impossible. And what you start to realize is, wow, okay. So what happens is we have to go do it. Was it perfect? No, but we tried all these tools and frankly, that were available. And right. do I think it'll look exactly like it looks today? No, but what we did is we ran a giant experiment and that's what innovation is. Try an idea, see how the customer reacts, refine it, see what works, what doesn't. And I think this, it's kind of forced us into this learning mode, right? Which is let's go try these things. And I think we're going to end up in a place that this year will be better than last. And in two years will be even better. And some of the technology we started with at the beginning of this is not going away. Now, do I think we'll go to a hundred percent virtual yeah, for some courses? Yes. But I also think we're learning something else. Interesting is where doesn't it work? Yeah. yeah Which we yeah. also didn't really know before. Yeah. People just didn't want to try it. And so you actually get two pieces of information. You also now know if you're going to bring students on campus, you better add a lot more value than having them sit in a lecture hall where there's no interaction because I can do that online. Yeah. And so and so the market's kind of forcing you know higher ed to challenge themselves. So say, okay, we better add a lot more value than that or why would they pay to sit here? Yeah. You know, I would add to that. I, I speak at a lot of conferences. I think conferences are going to have to change. You know, when we ever get back to having 3000 people attend a conference, it better look something different than what I can do over Zoom or some technology like that. Oh, no doubt. I've, uh, you know, I launched a book in COVID and normally I would be on the road doing speaking engagements right. and they all got canceled. But I've had a chance to not only do virtual events in the United States, I've also had a chance to do I did one for a group of CEOs in Italy. And then mm -hmm. later that same week, I did one for a group of people in Australia. I couldn't have yeah. done that right. in a regular time. And, and for the event, people in the event business, they're struggling. But the reality is, if your content is good, this is an opportunity. Now, if your content's not very good, yeah, you're going to feel some competitive threat. But I think for the people with great insights, they actually have less barriers or a friend of mine says there's less friction to get to those customers than there was before. Yeah. Have you ever tried looking for a domain name? Chances are that the first few options you tried were not available and you're not alone. I mean, over 65% of domain name searches actually fail because, you know, all good domain names are already taken. 
But that's not necessarily true. In fact, I got myself selfreliance.site where I talk about my book, The Self-Reliant Entrepreneur, and share content to help people become self-reliant in their entrepreneurial journey. You too can get your very own .site domain for as low as $1.99. Visit www.get.site or click the link in the description on the show notes page. Search for your unique .site domain and use the code SELFRELIANCE to get 50% off your domain purchase. So let's go back to uh, the, the, you know, the, the brick and mortar real life, you know, business. <laughs> um, should they be, should, should they have a constant sort of uh, antenna up for innovation? I mean, should they constantly be trying to break stuff even when it works? Yes and no. So yes, because if you don't, the market's going to evolve, right? So you can pretend like it's not going to happen, but it eventually will. Now, that being said, some businesses move way slower than others. And so I think what you have to ask yourself is how important is it to the next five years of your life? And I think you have to make a choice because if you go in half-hearted to innovation, it will not work. You will frustrate yourself and your team. You'd have been better off just doubling down on the old model. To do innovation, you've got to believe If you don't innovate, something will fundamentally be wrong because what happens in the process is some things are going to go wrong. You're going to take a perfectly good business and kind of screw up parts of it, trying to make it better. And you got to be okay with that. And what I would say is some business owners are good with that. And some are like the moment they hit that wall, they get stuck. So my suggestion is if if you're going to pursue innovation, don't just go, don't just go for it, but go for it and don't give yourself a backup plan. Hmm. In other words, commit to where you're so far in, you have no choice but to keep going. Because otherwise what happens is human nature, the moment you hit a problem, someone's going to say, why would you screw up? We might make less money this year in our business yeah. if we do yeah. that. Yeah, you probably will. Yeah. But you might end up a place, you can end up in a place that's otherwise not possible if you go down this path. But So I think, you know, especially in small business, the business owner has to believe they can't, they can't be half committed to innovation. They have to be fully committed so that their team's allowed to take the risk they need to take. Yeah. So you, you better firmly believe you're going to end up in a better place, right? <laughs> yeah. And also be comfortable that it won't feel that way Yeah, on the road to get there. Yeah. So that, that leads me to the next question I was going to ask, you know, what, what trait or maybe small group of traits does, you know, an innovator, a true innovator need to have? So, I actually came up with a way to try to figure out what were the people that would have been successful in our business. And after interviewing people for more than 20 years, there's three qualities I cared about. And I called it my UFO test. So uh, the first one was, how do I understand if people are comfortable with uncertainty? So I would typically ask them some crazy question. The one I typically used was, hey, tell me in an interview with no preparation, I'd ask someone to tell me how many barbers there are in the city of New York. (laughs) <laughs> and try to figure it out. And uh, and what would happen is I didn't care what the answer is. I wanted to see how they responded in that moment. Could they try to figure out how do you deal with an uncertain situation? And can you, can you muddle through, right? That's part of it. So that's kind of the first one. Second one is failure. I rarely asked about people's career success. I only want to know about their failures. I want them to be able to tell me real failures. I want to be able to talk about it. And I wanted them to be able to tell me if they learned anything. Some people can some people can't. Yeah. If, if you're not comfortable talking about failure, 
you're going to have a lot of trouble going down these paths when it's not working. And then the last one was ownership. And in ownership, I typically, uh, in my case, I was interviewing people with resumes from different companies and I would typically find something on their resume. And I asked them a question along the lines of, I I had a a senior executive from Kodak uh, interview for a job. And I asked her, you know, she was very proud of her experience. And I said, so you were there when they declared bankruptcy, right? She goes, yeah. And I said, why'd you let it happen? And she said, excuse me? I said, yeah, why'd you let the company go bankrupt? Cost the shareholders all their money. She goes, I didn't let it happen. I wasn't the CEO. I was, I was in charge of marketing. I said, well, you were on the team, right? I mean, you don't think there's something you could have done? Well, no. And then after we talked, she goes, okay, maybe there were some things I could and should have done. My point was innovation. You're going to try to do something that's never been done before. So you've got to be comfortable taking responsibility for the outcome and you don't control all the pieces. And I think most of us are trained our whole lives. We're supposed to have all the variables in check to make it just right. And what I found is people that were comfortable taking ownership and not knowing exactly how to get there were way more comfortable. So those are like the three key things I looked for. So if you believe your business, your industry is going to ultimately be obsolete or irrelevant if you don't continue to innovate a little bit, I mean, some innovations or some gaps are pretty obvious probably, but most probably aren't. So where do you go looking for opportunities? So one of my favorite places was is to listen to my competitors. Mm. And so when we were developing LED lighting, all the lighting companies told us no one would want LED lighting. They were more than happy with what they had. And so when they would say, not only shouldn't you do that, the customer doesn't want it and you couldn't achieve it even if you wanted to. When someone says you can't, that's the opportunity. Because essentially what the market's telling you is if everyone believes it's not possible, well, then if you make it possible, that's going to be an innovation. And so I think so often it's right around us. It's, so it's the thing, you can't wait for your customer to tell you what to do. I think one of the traps we fall into is we want to ask the customer. Customer can't ask for something they don't know yeah. is possible, right? Yeah. But they can tell you about their problems. And so it's the thing they think you can't do for them. That's to me where the opportunity, and especially if you're, if your competitors think it's not possible, that's gold. Yeah, it's funny. I, over the years, <clears throat> I've always, my ears really perk up when somebody says, well, that's how we've always done it, you know, or, <laughs> you know, that's, or that's our, you know, here are our best practices. It's like, that's where, that's where something's broken, you know, because that's most best practices are set up for the company, not for the customer. <laughs> well, also, if you think about it, a best practice is actually not best. Yeah. Like it. <laughs> If you follow best practices, the best case scenario is you're just as good as everyone else. Right. You actually want better practices. Right. And so, but that's, that's really hard. I mean, look, we're all kind of, it's cultural, you know, you're supposed to use the best practices. And, and by the way, we were in a technology business. So I wanted to be really innovative when it came to technology. We didn't want best practices, by the way, in accounting. <laughs> like that's kind of a problem. So, you know, yeah. there, I don't mean you don't want to use them where they make sense, but in the parts of your business that impact the customer, where you really have to innovate, I think you have to be very careful getting stuck with what someone else has already done. How much of a role does culture play in innovation? I mean, it's one thing for the CEO to come and say, we're going to innovate, you know, but everybody's got to be looking right. So how do you, how do you create that culture of innovation? Well, so it's a combination of culture and mindset, which I think are completely interrelated. You have to have people that think a certain way, and they're not going to be able to think that way if the culture doesn't support that type of thinking and reinforce it. So to me, they're completely interrelated. You know, when I, I sometimes work with uh, more traditional companies, and their biggest problem is, is that 
they have all these, they have all this expertise and they're really good at certain things. And I'm like, yeah, but you have to get being good at that's not going to help with this new problem. But they're like, but that's who we are. And I said, okay, but if you want to do this, you're going to have to become somebody else. And that means creating a situation. And so oftentimes, you know, I hear, I'll watch someone, you know, a leader will say, we want you guys to innovate more. <laughs> and then he holds his team accountable to the same exact metrics every month that he did before. And it's like, well, you understand those metrics are going to get you the same result. If you want me to do that, that's one thing. If you want me to innovate, you got to give me a set of metrics that look radically different. And I think we can, conf- we use our management processes to try to get innovation and innovation has very little to do with management and a lot more to do with culture and leadership. Yeah. And I think I personally think that that, uh, that really screams for diversity in organizations too. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Tom Peters work. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, uh, but uh, I remember reading a long time ago that, that he was advising companies that, you know, every department should have that person that thinks what you do in that department is stupid um, and is willing to go, why, 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 <laughs> you know, all the time. And, and, you know, that's, that's sort of culture, isn't it? Yeah, we actually used to say when you want to start, let's say you have a business and you want to do something really innovative and that's not normally what you do, don't take the people that are best at your current business. Right. <laughs> take the ones, I call them on the edges, right? Yeah. And so or some people might call them the misfits. So if you think about a bell curve, you have these really great employees that do everything right a certain way, you're promoting them. Like if they're really good at your current business, they're probably pretty good at following the rules and not very good at breaking them. <laughs> so you want the really talented people that, are so frustrated, they're complaining, are probably looking for another job, or the people that may not be looking for another job, but they're almost incorrigible, but they're still really bright. I would put those people on the team and let them run them with it, and you'll get incredibly unique outcomes. Right, or at least different viewpoints. So uh, Chuck, tell people where they can find out more about uh, the innovator's spirit, where they can pick up a copy and uh, find out maybe a little more about uh, your work. Yeah, so the book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. Um, probably the most best way to find out more information about what I'm doing is on my website, which is chuckswoboda.com. I also, uh, pretty active on social media, both that be LinkedIn or on Twitter at the Chuck Swoboda. And I also write a couple times a month for Forbes. Awesome. Well, Chuck, thanks for uh, stopping by the duct tape marketing podcast and hopefully we'll see you someday out there on the road. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me.